Hello and welcome to another episode of Planning People, the anime podcast. Yes, they were young enough to get decent housing, but they didn't get the racing stock markets of the 80s and their kids are now at uni, which is expensive, and their parents are in care homes, which is even more expensive. They're now grappling, perhaps, with the effects of policies like the annual allowance taper. What on earth are you talking about, I hear you ask? Uh, I am, of course, talking about Generation X. This is an intergenerational podcast to talk through the specifics of Generation X and their pension pain. I'm joined by a man who's very special to me uh, because he was the first pension spokesperson I met shortly after I'd started as a pensions reporter on NMA way back in 2015. Uh, At that point, he was working at Legal and General, but now, among other guises, he's Director of Retirement Strategy at technology and consultancy firm Dunstan Thomas. It's Adrian Balding, beloved to us all uh, for his jovial style and reasoned take on pensions policy, and we couldn't fail to mention his collection of antique Jaguar cars. Good afternoon, and thank you so much for coming in how are you and how are the cars importantly i'm fine i'm fine ollie i'm having a great life thank you very much life since leaving lng has been very good to me i do three jobs simultaneously trying to catch up because the average person has 11 jobs in their career and when i left lng i'd only done two okay so i'm doing them three at a time now in order to boost that number and hopefully get up to the average before i eventually reach retirement age and the cars are fine they're very happy except for the one that i use for promotional filming the s-type is throwing steering oil all over the floor at the moment which is very naughty of it what a naughty car um you are i'm honored to say uh in the uh, position of being the arch plate spinner (laughs) Uh, I think. Um, But um, we're here today to talk about a special report that Dunstan Thomas has commissioned and published, uh, which deals with intergenerational issues, but specifically the plight of Generation X, which has kind of been identified as a squeezed generation between the baby boomers and millennials like myself. Uh, You could argue, Adrian, that my summary a few seconds ago was a bit sort of crude in terms of sort of summing up their main problems and concerns. So I think we should just sort of define our scope of operations here a bit. Um, So who are Gen X and and what are the very specific issues that they're facing? Well, the the key thing is age, because age defines all your generations. And generally, the numbers the demographers come up with is that a Generation X person is between ages 39 and 54. Right. So they're right in the middle of their their career. Um, They are long past all those sort of early flamboyant days when perhaps they could afford to be naughty and the rest of it. They're past, they're into the serious earning part of their career. They are close enough to retirement that they can begin to see it creeping over the horizon coming into view, but they're not there yet. Yes, and they've obviously got a mortgage normally They've got, as I said, kids uh, and uh, some, as this report makes clear, actually, some quite hefty liabilities. I mean, the number of uh, parents that are still paying their adult children's phone bills is astonishing. Um, We'll come on to more of that in a second. But just to come on to where all this sort of started in terms of the the pension politics, um, you briefed me just before we started recording about the, you know, the the Turner report, the Turner Commission. Um, And you told me that there were sort of three options that that commission posed. You know, what were they and what's the relevance to the Gen X situation? Well, Lord Turner was, um, you know, tasked by Tony Blair and Gordon Brown to go and sort out the British pension system. Um, He went away, did an enormous piece of analysis. He's a McKinsey-trained consultant at at heart. And in the best McKinsey fashion, he came back with three options. And he said to Gordon Brown, look, you've got three options for people. They've either got to save more, Mm. work longer, or we're going to have poorer pensioners. Mm. 
So, um, you know, we set to, we've had all the turn of reforms, we've had the automatic enrolment, we've had the putting back of the state pension age and the rest of it. So politically, a lot of it is in track. But one of the things which we thought slightly cheekily we'd do in our survey was we'd actually ask Gen X, who we'd revealed are not really quite on track to hitting a reasonable pension yet, what are they going to do about it? And would they prefer to save more, work longer, yeah. or have poorer pensioners? Um, Which bullet would they rather shoot themselves with? They, yeah, I know. Well, a big preference, big preference. The most popular came back, work longer. Right. 36%. That's a classic um, sort of behavioural thing, which is I'm going to put the problem off until later. Yes. I'll just work for longer. Yeah. Um, our second most popular was just to take it on the chin and say, well, I'm going to be a poorer pensioner. 31% said, well, we're just going to be poor. We understand that. Right. 26% um, came in as the least popular out of the three, save more. Again, classic you know, behavioural thing. Do I want to reduce the expenditure I'm enjoying today in order to have more money in the future? No, probably not. So that came in at bottom at 26. If you add those three up, 26 for save more, 36 for work longer, 31 for poorer pensioners, you'll find it does not add to 100 because we did give them a fourth option. And 7% <laughs> of them plumped for the fourth option, which was emigrate to somewhere cheaper. They're mm. going to head down to Spain and Portugal and Slovakia. the like. Slovakia. And um, hope that some living standards can be maintained, but uh, you know, fewer euros. Mm, sure. And obviously, there's nothing in the political environment currently that could prevent them from doing that in a smooth fashion. Um, <laughs> moving swiftly on from that, I mean, another thing that you said to me over lunch, I should add that when I first met Adrian uh, all those years ago, he was the first pensions policy person to uh, meet, meet up with me in a hotel on the, on the South Bank, fill me full of beer and send me back to my desk sort of slightly merry. Uh, and that's why I opted immediately for the pint of beer to recreate that moment. I would add that I'm, I'm not as merry as I was then. I've since learned as a journalist to handle my booze. Um, but there's, a slight, there's a slight twist to this story, which I will tell with the benefits, is that I got into the pub first. So my pint <laughs> of beer was already stood up, looking absolutely gorgeous. And Ollie came in <laughs> and said to the, the serving girl, I'll have one of those. <laughs> and after she'd shot off, I, I let Ollie know, well, actually, it was an alcohol-free beer. So he sprinted after the serving girl and corrected the order to his, his normal. Well, Adrian, <laughs> in this tete-a-tete of beer conversation, I have to reveal, as top journalists, we like to scoop people and get exclusives. I can exclusive, exclusively reveal that that was not a non-alcoholic beer you were drinking. <laughs> they made a mistake because when I went to the bar, I said, I'll have an, a non-alcoholic beer. And she said, that's not a non-alcoholic beer. <laughs> so you and I, are we are both intoxicated. Well, it, it was very nice. And now I know why it was so good. good. I'm glad are. that we have both supped on the golden nectar. Um, you mentioned over uh, lunch that there's this sort of bizarre paradox when it comes to Gen X saving, that they've had the worst of both worlds. Why is that with, when it comes to sort of DC and DB saving? Well, it's interesting because the, the Gen X group generally started well, while DB was still very much the rave. Um, our survey shown that one in four Gen Xers still have a DB entitlement, which probably means about half of them had it originally and half have transferred out and taken the money and gone. Yeah. Um, but they began with DB and of course they're going to end with DC. And the strange thing, when you look under the bonnet of these pension plans, if you're in a DC plan, 
the valuable years are the early years of contribution because mm. you put the money in and it grows for years and years and years and that compounding effect on the investment growth means those early DC contributions are really, really valuable. Mm. If you're in a DB plan, it's the later contributions that are really valuable. Yeah, of because of you're accruing a few 60ths. Um, every time you get a pay rise, it applies to the earlier 60ths as well. And it's not very long before that pension is going to become payable. Um, so if a DB, the later years are good. So in an ideal world, you would start in DC, your employer would go through some seismic change in the middle, you'd be turfed into a DB scheme in your later years, and you'd be a very wealthy pensioner. The Gen Xers, unfortunately, have had it the other way round. And they were in DB in their early years, where the benefit is not very great. And they're in DC in their later years, where there's not much chance for investment returns. Mm. So they've had the worst of both worlds, I'm afraid. Mm. So in that context, I mean, I just was looking online, did a quick sort of Google search about sort of editorial uh, you know, reporting of this uh, survey that you've done. It's led to headlines like, pension pain for Generation X, a national scandal. Uh, just 8% of Generation X saw an IFA last year. Uh, are those just dramatic takes on an otherwise sort of, you know, uh, not so bad and considered outcome? Or do you believe that, you know, this is a national scandal and that sort of members of the cohort are gen genuinely heading for trouble here? Because it seems to be under, it seems to be sort of underreported. The, the main battle in the press is between the baby boomers and the millennials who spend too much of their disposable income on avocado sandwiches and, and the boomers who, you know, with impunity, you know, just accuse millennials of, of, of being awful people. Well, absolutely. I mean, it was David Willits that famously said that the you know, baby boomers had, had eaten their children's inheritance. Um, and forgetting, you know, this generation in the middle, this sandwich generation that are, are squeezed, as we said, from perhaps paying for both their own children, yeah. um, you know, and their own parents at the same time. Um, they've had the worst of both worlds out of the pensions. And, you know, what we're exposing, which I think kind of we kind of all know, is that their pension provision is inadequate. Mm. Um, I'm particularly pleased with the work that PLSA have been doing, which is trying to shift the debate from how much do you need to pay in. There was an actuarial figure which appeared some while back that said, you know, people need to be paying in £750 a month to get a decent pension. Our survey shows that only 5% of Gen Xers are paying that in. But PLSA have really tried to move the debate away from that into saying, well, what pension is it that you want? Mm. So PLSA have created their, their three living standards, um, you know, a minimum standard if you want to be on the breadline, a moderate standard if you want to enjoy a few of life's comforts, and a comfortable standard if you want to fully participate in society and do all the things that we imagine pensioners should do. Mm. And those were standards that were kind of expanded on by, was it the In Institute of Actuarial Affairs? Another body that sort of saw this and thought, we're going to put some actuarial sort of meat on the bone. And they said, you know, to have even a moderate retirement, I mean, these people, Gen X are going to have to be putting away more than £700 a month. I mean, that's quite an astonishing figure to be well, putting solely into a pension. But don't forget, that's the unknown bit. The right. known bit, the standards that they produced are relatively stable. They did some good work with the University of Loughborough in terms of what does it cost to live. They put together some personas for minimum, moderate and comfortable. They're published as an individual. You can go into the website and look at them and say, well, comfortable's got two holidays a year. Actually, I want three or four or whatever. And so you can adjust them and you can work out what income you want. And that's reasonably known. 
The difficulty about a DC plan is that what you put in does not generate any sort of known outcome. Yeah. So, yes, on certain actuarial assumptions, a £750 a month you know, input will generate you a comfortable pension. Because the assumptions about growth and but, investment, etc. You know, are those assumptions going to be borne out? Were they too cautious? We won't know until we get there. And that's part of the strange thing about living within a DC environment, which you know, most savers today have to live within. Um, you need to keep focused on the destination and adjust your travel as you're, as you're going. It's a bit like a ship, which is you know, going to be blown around, blown off course mm -hmm. um, at times. Other times there'll be a favorable wind behind you and you'll leap forward ahead. Um, but just keep focused on the destination, the outcome that you want. Yeah, sure. Can we just address one specific thing, you know, a specific conclusion from the report? I mean, it says that over a fifth of Gen Xers have no pension whatsoever. I mean, we've talked about the difference between DB and DC and, you know, the sort of raw deal there of starting in one and finishing in another. I mean, how has that happened that Gen Xers, you know, a fifth of Gen Xers have no pension whatsoever? I mean, what are the circumstances that could have led to that? Well, that was one of the numbers that I really struggled with when it came out. So we have to write the report as saying that a fifth of the Gen X tell us that they have no pension mm. at all. Right. Um, now, it might be that they have no pension, and classically the groups that have no pensions are people that are self-employed, they're working in the gig economy, right. um, or they've been automatically enrolled into their employer scheme, but they feel short of the money, so they've opted out and, and ignored that. Mm. Um, or they are um, you know, unemployed, they are perhaps you know, housewives that are blending work with employment, and they haven't reached the £10,000 of part-time earnings that you need to get automatically enrolled. So they might really have no pension, or it might be that they've kind of forgotten that they've got a pension, they're not aware that the thing they've got is a pension plan. Mm. And again, there was a big piece of PLSA research last year where they rang up people that they knew had been automatically enrolled into one of the big three master trusts. And one in six of those denied that they had a pension plan. Right. They just hadn't managed to put together the fact yeah. that they'd had some letters saying you've got a pension. They'd had a note from their employer saying they're being automatically enrolled. Some money's being deducted off their pay slip. If they read the pay slip, there's a line on it. And they hadn't managed to connect all that together with the fact they are now saving on a pension plan. So the good ship retirement sort of floundering on the rocks of poor education and understanding once again. I mean, that seems to be a, a kind of issue. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why PLSA has tried to sort of simplify the discussion, isn't it? The eyes glaze over because pensions are notoriously complicated. Okay. Uh, which in one sense is good news for advisors because if they were really, really simple, nobody would need an advisor yeah. in order to, to, to do it. You know, you don't need an advisor to decide whether you want to buy margarine or butter down at the supermarket. Yeah. You just follow your preferences and if you want to look at the ingredients, it says and it, what's in them. Yeah. But when you want to have a pension, it is fiendishly complicated. Mm. Largely because um, Treasury insists on forever changing the tax rule. Sure. So one of the big things an advisor can do is to steer the clients through that complication. Mm. Tell the client what they need to know and you know, say the IFA will look after the rest of it for them. Um, you seem to be touching there at the beginning of that answer about you know, sort of pensions, despite your own efforts, Adrian, being fundamentally unsexy. Uh, but uh, we know from you know, uh, Treasury and uh, certain chancellors that you know, efforts have been made to sort of sex the whole system up and to allow people freedom and flexibility. Um, 
that in turn has led to this sort of characterization of the annuity space as being you know boring and no longer relevant for retirees coming into that space particularly where they've got an advisor who might be advising them into a drawdown arrangement you know charging them an on ongoing fee what do we know about annuities and, and generation x do they find them more or less attractive is there a sort of pull towards annuities because they know they're going to have sort of retirement income problems in the future what we know what we know is that they're coming up to um, meeting investment pathways mm. The bulk of these Generation X are non-advised, so they get into the point where their pension provider is going to put the, the investment pathways in front of them and help them to choose to shape their funds so they're in the right shape for eventually buying either annuity or drawdown or cash it all in. Mm -hmm. And intriguingly, we did as part of the survey, we said to them, well, where are you going to be going? And although a lot said it's still far too early to tell, we're just paying in at the moment, where they did express a preference as to what did they think they'd be doing with their money in perhaps about five years' time when they started to draw it, because our older generation Xers, within five years, will have achieved age 55 and could draw. Twice as many said they'd buy a guaranteed income as would draw it down out of the fund. And twice as many said they'd draw it down out of the fund as would cash the whole lot in at once. That's really, really interesting. Does that, did that surprise you at all? It comes down to framing a lot. You know, I think, and you say, would you be interested in buying a guaranteed income? They like that. When you say, would you be interested in buying an annuity? They say, oh, that's one of the things I've read about in the Mail on Sunday, and Ros Altman was saying they were terrible value. And uh, no, I, I got to steer a mile clear of those things. <laughs> so. Sure. I mean, you know, with no disrespect to Rolls, I'm sure that she one day herself will have the honour of being on one of these podcasts. Perhaps she can talk about that in more depth. Um, one thing that's quite striking in the report is about this, um, the effect of the financial crisis in 2008. And I think there's a sort of quite common narrative uh, editorially for us where we talk about, you know, the bull run after the crash and how positive that's been for you know, client portfolios and what's going to happen next. And it strikes me that, you know, there tends to be an assumption there that this is solely a narrative affecting baby boomers' finances. You make the point in the report of, of highlighting that Gen X have actually really lost out because of 2008 and the impact on their finances. Why, why has it been so pronounced and, and what's specifically been the impact on pension saving? It's worth remembering that if we have a bull run on equities, it's really, really good for the people that had already got some money invested in equities when that bull run started. Yeah. They're the ones that really benefit from it. And I think that's why the baby boomers have done so, so well out of that. Because they were already in the game. They'd already got lots and lots of money invested. What we've seen studying the Gen Xs is that lots of them took a hit as we went through the, the recession. And it kind of comes in in two forms. So um, a lot stopped saving. One in seven put their pension savings on hold for the entire five years of the recession, right through 2008 to 2013. They made no pension saving at all because of the recession. Mm -hmm. And so clearly, you know, they were, they were hit there. The other way that we've looked at that is we've looked at the effect of redundancy mm -hmm. on pensions, because clearly a lot of people suffered from redundancy as we went through that, that, that great recession. 42% um, of our Gen Xers have been made compulsory redundant at least once. 4% mm. have been made compulsory redundant four times, so they've really had it, had it rough. Mm. 
And the effect that compulsory redundancy has on savings really surprised me. If you look at the group of people that have never been made redundant, their average pension pot today for the Gen X is £202,000. Then when you look at the average about those who have been made compulsory redundant at least once, it drops right down to £121,000, a 40% hit through the effect of having been made redundant. And I was shocked by that, not just by the magnitude, but because I move a lot in financial services circles. Quite a lot of my friends have actually been made redundant. And what I find typically they did was they went out, they found another job before they'd spent their way through all the redundancy money. And they then put the rest of the redundancy money into their pension plan. So I'd naively been thinking that actually these people that have been made redundant probably have got more money in their pension plan than the ones that have never been made redundant because they'd had that lovely big redundancy lump sum and they'd put at least some of it into the pension. And a lovely period of gardening leave. Yeah, but the figures tell us, I'm afraid, is the other way around. Sure. The people that have never been made redundant, obviously whose contributions have continued throughout the period, are considerably better off than the ones who have suffered a redundancy event. Mm, that's, that's really, really interesting. Were there any other areas of the research that kind of uh, challenged your assumptions, perhaps based on that sort of financial services bubble, Adrian, or was that the, uh, the only moment where you sort of looked at it and thought, hmm, that's quite interesting? Um, I think those are the sort of things we were expecting to see. Um, I mean, there's a big, uh, you know, gender pension difference mm. in there. A lot of people have been doing work on, on gender pension gap at the moment, yeah. and it's all about saying we know there's a gender pay gap, and various devices in the pensions world expand that, and you end up with an even bigger um, gender pension gap. So our research has shown that the average male Gen X has a pension of £186,000, the average female Gen X only £118,000 in her pot. Mm. Is there any sort of comparative uh, evidence with boomers? Because I know that Dunstan Thomas has done a little bit of research on boomers before, just off the top of your head. I know this is a challenging question. Is, there, is that worse or better than boomers? Or it's do you expect it to be worse or better than millennials? Or? It's, it's, it's worse, and it's worse because of, if you think about where the real hit comes, I mean, setting aside the fact that, that you know, women are paid less than men, they shouldn't be, but the yep. data still it's tells us they are. If you set that aside, the other big impact on, on gender difference is the fact that women take some time out of the labor market for family formation and then go part-time to care for the children while they're still in primary school and things. Mm. Those are the younger years, obviously. It's going to be people taking some time out of the labor market in their late 20s, early 30s, say. Yeah. And in a DC environment, which is where the Gen X and the millennials are, missing those early contributions, which are then going to miss the huge investment growth we've already talked about, is really, really bad. Whereas if you're in a DB environment, um, there's every chance that, um, although you've missed a few years of service, by the time you've worked your way through to retirement age, um, your career should have forgotten that you took some years out early on, and you should at least in theory end up at the same salary as an equivalent. Mm. Um, great answer to that question, because that was an on-the-spot question. Um, penultimate question. We've as I think I mentioned, we've discussed these sorts of intergenerational issues on podcast episodes not once but twice before. So I did an episode in 2018 with Dr. Eliza Philby, who's an academic uh, CityWire speaker, uh, who's also sort of navigated those issues in her research and her work with sort of private sector businesses to help them understand 
the different generational differences and how they you know, need to be responding to them. Um, but we also covered them last year uh, with Tizer, who I know uh, are very special to you. Uh, in that episode, uh, Charles McCready, who's their policy strategy director, he reflected on the increased popularity of equity release, particularly in this sort of new period of you know, equity release, done appropriately, let's leave the bad stuff behind in the past. Um, that period, you know, is is really coming through now, and the stats from the Equity Release Council really seem to be showing a boom. And it tends to be the boomers, that, as far as I can see from the from the research I've seen, that that are really using it. But in his opinion, he was sort of saying, well, it's going to be Gen X that's going to need equity to release the most potentially, as they realise, you know, the shortfall and they come up to their retirement date and they kind of want to use some of the housing wealth that they perhaps do have. Uh, to fund their lifestyles. I wonder what you thought about that. Is that a sort of cogent analysis? And is there any sort of follow-up to that that you know, intergenerational experts need to consider or actuaries need to consider? Equity release is a very strange market because it's a phenomenon that we've always been expecting it to take off shortly. <laughs> and it's always because the people that have arrived at retirement, they don't quite need it enough. Right. To, to, to go through the, the, the process. I love the way you and put that. There is, there's something of a sort of humbling about you know, having to put your house in hock yeah. and not being able to leave it to the next generation as an inheritance, which yeah. puts people off. So it's always been something which we thought, yeah, the next lot are really going to need it. Um, and Charles might well be right. Um, you know, Tizer are quite good at forecasting these things. And uh, the research we've done, again, builds on the thing that says they've got some pension but it's probably not going to be enough pension. Mm. Um, the other factor which I think could drive it, interestingly, is the desire that is now coming about from the inheritance tax rules to spend the pension last. Mm. So if you think about somebody's total wealth, they've got some pension, they've got some ISAs, they've got some general savings account, they've got a house. If you leave the pension till last, then from an inheritance point of view, if you die before age 75, it passes entirely tax-free. If you die post-75, it, <coughs> it misses the inheritance tax net, but it just has to pay marginal rate income tax from the beneficiaries. And if you've skipped a couple of generations in it, you're probably leaving it to people who are basic rate taxpayers. So there is quite a bit of where people are doing complicated financial planning. They are trying to say, we want to leave the pension until last. And consume lots of other things first. And that might drive you know, some people to say, well, let's get our um, equity release facility on the house. Mm -hmm. And with a modern plan, um, you know, your equity release loan might say they'll lend you 40% of the value of your house. You don't have to draw 40% now. You might draw four now, but you know you've got the, the other 36 stacked up if you want to come to it later. Mm -hmm. And so we might see some people saying, I'll consume a bit of the house because actually it's just going to be more tax efficient when it comes to the inheritance. I see. Thank you for applying your sort of technical brain to this uh, bombardment of questions. I have one final one, which is not about uh, Gen X. Um, your cars, Adrian. I mean, what a fascinating hobby to have, to, to have this amazing collection of cars. Do you view them as an investment or is it just a sort of for the love of it? 
because there are all sorts of columns in the you know the weekend tabloids to say oh is pension better than property property better than a pension what else can you make your money from you know there are boomers out there thinking well i didn't know how rich i was you know how can i put some more money in something else that could be fun do you view sort of car collecting as an investment is that a worthwhile thing financially or is well, it just for the love if of you it? if you go back to um the pension simplification um, when <laughs> Gordon Brown was Chancellor there and he was go. changing all the pension rules, yep. um, Brown announced a huge opening up of SIPs. Mm. And he announced that you would be able to put residential property in a SIP and you'd be able to put Your chattels into a SIP. And the Sunday Times, bless them, did me a two-page colour spread of myself and a beautiful Daimler Majestic Major that I owned at the time saying that <laughs> I'm going to put this Daimler inside the SIP. Now, I don't know whether it was that article that the Chancellor read or not, probably not, but he changed his mind just before <laughs> the laws came to pass. And, of course, you can't put a car in a SIP. So it's your fault. You can't put a house or your buy-to-let flats into a SIP. Um, and it's probably just as well, because I've owned about a dozen have now sort of passed through my hands at various times. And, in fact, it's only that one, that Daimler Majestic Major that the Sunday Times featured that I have made money on. And I have to confess, all the others, um, having given them, you know, a good thorough thrashing, um, <laughs> they sell for less than I paid for them. Okay. How honest of you to admit. So don't, don't put it in as an investment, but they're great fun to have. Sure, sure. Do you have a favourite driving route? Where do you like to go in them? I mean, it strikes me as, as quite interesting that you drive them. I know some famous car collectors like um, Charlie Watts from the Rolling Stones. He just sits in his. Oh, no, no, no. Doesn't no, like no. to take get them out, Get out and use them, uh, particularly Jaguars. Um, Jaguar always said that they sold you an engine. Yeah. And the bodywork and the seats and the rest of it were ancillary stuff that you just needed to have in order to enjoy the engine. But it was the engine was the real thing you'd bought. Right. Well, you can only enjoy that by driving it. Um, I think my favourite route is down the A31 to Winchester. There's a big archery tournament that goes on every year, and I drive the Jag down to Winchester and have a, have a great time. And it's also a sort of what you might call a sort of old-fashioned A-road that's got roundabouts and it's got turn, um, you know, corners to it. Um, it's got sections of dual carriageway. You can, you know, put your foot down and overtake other things. Something um, for every discerning Jag lover. Yeah. That's, that's great. Um, Adrian, it's been an absolute pleasure having you back at CityWire after all this time. Uh, thank you so much for coming in. Uh, if you are interested in listening to our previous episodes, I should say, about intergenerational issues, you can find them in our back catalogue on Spotify. Uh, just open the app and search for New Model Advisor. You might have to do a bit of scrolling, but as the host of both of those episodes, I will assure you that they will be worth it. Uh, looking for. Uh, in the meantime, if you have any news, views, or indeed reviews on this stuff, do not hesitate to get in touch with the news team here at NMA on the email address news at citywire.co.uk. We do read everything you write, and if it's really interesting, we might even publish it with your permission, of course. So get writing and get listening. Until next time, I've been Ollie Smith. He's been Adrian Balding. Thanks for listening, and goodbye. Cheerio.